Welcome to Social Distance Warriors, which is a podcast about the pandemic and other things that are vaguely related to the pandemic. My name is Tom, and I'm not an expert on any of the aforementioned topics. And I'm Rat, and I am also not an expert on any of those topics. But today we have a guest. Hi, I'm Mads Fiant, and um, I'm also not an expert on anything, formally speaking. I have a reputation on some parts of the internet, but mostly I'm just a rat's housemate and longtime nice. friend. Yeah. Yes, and that counts for a lot. <laughs> I think friendship is a form of expertise. Great call. Great take. Love for it. Sure. Uh, someone, someone can uh, do needlepoint and get that on a, I don't know, a pillow or something. Anyhow, how's it going? It's, it's going all right. <laughs> I am four interviews deep and maybe a month and a half on an interview, on a job application process to a new job that I applied while I was still at my old job. And then I had to quit the old job because I could not do it. And uh, mm. so I'm in limbo, but oh, otherwise things are fine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. And Rat? I'm doing all right. I, um, last weekend, I visited my parents and like childhood hometown, and that sent me sort of like in a jet lag experience, even though I was not in a different time zone. It was like... Oh a uh, mental time zone and I'm still I'm still coming back. Respect it was that. Nice to uh see people, but it was a lot. I know the feeling. Yeah, um Sounds that was like also cuz um Hanukkah came very early this year. It was closer to Thanksgiving than it is Christmas, which just varies based on the lunar calendar. So Hanukkah has come and gone since we last recorded. Yeah, and I neglected to mention that at time of recording, it is December 8th in the year 2021. So true. <laughs> so very true. I just had my last class of grad school last night. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I am not quite done. There's still a paper that needs to be completed and submitted, but I don't have to go sit in a room anymore, which is good. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't really know what the structure of this is. <laughs> we don't have a structure. We don't do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, the double-edged sword of my personality is that if you let me, I will talk for hours. And I don't need anyone else to talk back, but I don't really, you know, what what's the vibe here? <laughs> the I, I would say, like, as much as you, uh, you, Madison, want to give, like, a how has the pandemic been treating you the past two years, um, yeah. listeners have heard in great excruciating detail how it's treated um, Tom and I. Oh, yeah. This is the beauty of of having a new voice. Okay. Well, um, I think there is sort of the pandemic before July of this year for me, and then there is the pandemic after July of this year for me, and they are very different because uh, Rat and I have just moved to a new city, mm. and I live here too now. So before that, I was living with my parents. Whereabouts? It's the town that Rat and I went to college. Okay. It's sort of between D.C. and Richmond, and my parents have actually also moved out of that house. They bought a new house and are selling that one, and I feel good about that. I've done my closure. I buried my collection of rusty items in the ground in my house. And, you know, that's a little bit of magic for you. Uh, <laughs> root that shit where it can't follow you. Yeah, so I had the experience a lot of, like, mentally ill or disabled people had, where the pandemic was, for a lot of normal people, newly what life had been for me for a long time. Mm. Where it was like, oh, y'all, this is your first time experiencing isolation. I can't even imagine that. But also, like, in terms of life events, 
About six months before the pandemic, I was going to thinking to myself, okay, I'm about to start really aggressively looking for a job in town so that I can save up money and leave. Because I had, when I moved out, I had been living in my parents' home for seven years after, so, <laughs> Funny story, Rat and I and all of our housemates met in a gender neutral housing dorm at our college. And you know, we all moved in at different times, but piecemeal, we have all lived with one another at one time or another. And we're all really closely connected by the time that our uh, youngest housemate moved into that dorm, we were all sort of around each other a lot. So this is in some ways familiar, but you know, at a certain point it was like, we can't continue to pay my rent to go to that dorm. So I moved in with my parents again, and stayed there for seven years, which is too long. I mean, you know, it's not too long in general. For most of human history, people have lived in multi-generational family homes. That's fine to do. It was too long for me to live with my parents in my childhood home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I had just been like, you know what I'm going to do? You know, it's about September of 2019. I'm going to hit the bricks like everyone says you should do. Um, I'm going to go look for those jobs. I'm going to start saving money to leave. And then my mom broke her uh, toe. She broke a bone oh. in her foot. I don't think it was her toe, actually, but she broke a bone in her foot and she was incompletely mobile, could not really go up or down stairs. And I had to be in the house more or less constantly for many months because I had to make sure that she was able to get food. And you know, my mom is not a young woman. She is a woman of a certain age, but uh, when she is in good health, her mobility has not been impaired yet. So that was a new adjustment for me. My personal ability to control where I was and where I went was drastically decreased because I had to make sure that mom could eat and get things she needed from the house. And, you know, about six months later, my mom was finally able to get up and downstairs reliably, leave the house, much less reliant on her mobility aids. And at about that same time, COVID happened. And oh. neither my mother nor my father are young people. At that time, of course, we knew very little about what, how the virus worked. We didn't really know how it transmitted. We just knew, knew that it was transmitting fast and it was dangerous. And we knew that it was particularly dangerous in those early stages for older adults. And so for the safety of my parents, I became very vigilant about COVID. It was a weird hypocrisy situation. My parents were enforcing on me that I be very strict about COVID and not always being very wise about it themselves. So one time my parents yeah. went to a party, an outdoor party, which I now know is quite safe, mm -hmm. but it was a party with like a dozen attendees or something like that or more. And it's like, oh, we're coming in shifts. We're staying six feet apart. And I was like, okay, I mean, I am some 30 odd years younger than you. I guess I can't really tell you that you shouldn't be doing this. Um, at the same time, my boyfriend at the time came to the house to visit and we ate on the porch and then it got extremely hot. And so we went inside for a bit and for about 20 minutes we were sit seated inside. We had just finished eating and had not put our masks back on. My parents get back home and my mother starts screaming at me immediately. <sighs> I hurry my boyfriend out of there, say, I love you, goodbye, we'll talk later. And mom is yelling at me to bleach every surface that he had touched or sat near. And I said, you want me to spray bleach on the couch? And no, she did not want that, but she did want me to kind of uh, grovel over it. And I was like, I was furious mm -hmm. because she had gotten back home from a party at someone else's house. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Objectively I speaking, I was not the one, like, I saw literally no one but my boyfriend. 
in the first many months of the pandemic because we were staying outside. We were keeping the cars, the, the car windows down even when it was cold. We spent long periods of time not talking to each other. And so the only people I ever saw were my mother and father. And my boyfriend and I were also kissing. <laughs> like being around him in social settings was not meaningfully exposing my parents to more risks than kissing would. And then my parents were going to parties at more than one person's house and seeing lots of different people. And sure, most of the time it was outside and they were following mask regulations, except when they didn't, such as about a week or two weeks after this party that my parents had gone to at someone else's house, they hosted a party at our house. And one of the guests at this house needed to come in to use the bathroom or like look at some of my mother's art. And I am wearing my mask inside the house, inside my own home. I walk through the kitchen, avoiding this party entirely because I don't want to be at a fucking party. Mm. Sorry if you have to bleep any of that out. Uh, no, we don't, we don't do that. Okay, yeah. It's I didn't want to be at a party. It was not a, it, it, even that in itself was infuriating to me, given how I had been humiliated for mm. having my boyfriend in the house brief. Um, and my mother, who is not wearing a mask, and her friend, who is not wearing a mask, walk into the house from the back deck and have an extended conversation in our dining room without wearing masks. Mm. And that sort of typifies my relationship with my parents and why that, why living in the house with them for seven years was not great. So... Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. The early part of the pandemic was an intensification of things that had already been going on. Yeah. And so it was bad, not great, but I had a lot of great coping skills for dealing oh. with it. And I felt a bit like um, the adult in the room when dealing with people who had had more normal lives. And so, you know, just generally people who were healthier and happier by nature. Yeah, it must have also felt a little bit like um, the world was getting more on your on your page since you had already been you know at least somewhat isolated and now everyone else was having to learn how to cope with that and coming up with new technological solutions and remaking the world so that isolation was no longer as problematic to your ability to function in the world as it would have been before yeah and kind of um reinventing the wheel about ways to live like that Mm. in ways where it was just like watching people stumble around blind a little bit and like, you know, offering my best help. I think of myself as a compassionate person. I'm not, I don't really feel bitter that often people who had gotten all A's in high school, gone to college and gotten all A's there and immediately launched into a professional career with no breaks and like sort of kept progressing in that career where I had several points along that process had essentially my metaphorical car breakdown. Suddenly they were in need of expertise I had. Like not bitter about it, but it was profoundly strange. Yeah. Mm. So that's sort of what the pandemic prior to July of 2021 was like for me, an intensification, a sort of rising action. But I sort of broke down to some social media friends and I got given an almost embarrassingly generous amount of money from a variety of people. It was, I think like almost $3,000 or something like that in, in just sort of a small donations, lots of people giving me money so that I could move. And I think probably by that point, 
Our housemates had already said, hey, we'd like to move out of our really small apartment, single room apartment that we've been living in together and move somewhere bigger. Do y'all, none of you who are terribly happy where you're living, want to move in with us? And so, you know, I was looking at a lot of things. I was looking at moving places still with the same boyfriend, but that did not pan out. But suddenly I had this nest egg. And, oh. you know, it's embarrassing to ask for help like that, but in July, everything changed. I moved here. And I found out that the things I had sort of been saying and hoping were true, that I would be a completely different person with completely different capabilities when I was no longer living with my parents in my childhood home, turned out to be true. Mm. Um, Rat, the other of our roommates who was new to the area, and I all got jobs almost immediately, and I was conducting my own business. The job was miserable. I eventually got a transfer out of that position and then realized when the training started for the new position, oh, you know what? Maybe this job is one that I could have worked if I hadn't just immediately done this other job. It was a phone position, but not a, it wasn't a sales position anymore. It was going to be doing different things. And so I was like, maybe I can do this. No, completely had all of my good faith burned out by the job before. Point being though, I worked that job for months. I got it immediately and I suddenly I realized, oh, I can function, I can read a bus schedule. I'm actually, my creative output has increased now that I have a 40 plus hour work week because that is how drastically I was sort of being held under in my parents' home. Hmm. So, you know, my diet improved. I figured out several things that I can't digest because I was like, I can't digest rice. I can't digest pork. I'm finally actually cutting lactose out of my diet. My health just really improved. So the only thing I can think of as like, this is really emblematic of the pandemic to me that is a constant before and after this move is that um, it's not safe to go to a dance floor anymore. Mm, yeah. And even when I was, if my mother was asleep, even with her broken foot, I could be like, fuck it, I'm gonna walk 40 minutes downtown and go dance. And, you know, dance my troubles away. It's a cliche for a reason. And now that is not possible. I am not proud of it, but immediately after I moved into this home, I went to a gay bar in town and just danced my ever-loving out blues out for several hours. And it was inside. It was not a safe place to do that. I regretted it almost immediately, but I also have a little bit of kindness for myself about that because again, I had just moved out of my parents' house uh, into a city for the first time in my life. And I, if I lost my mind a little bit, I think that makes a little bit of sense. And um, Rad at least has not said to me that he considers this a, a grave and unforgivable breach of trust because he's the one who moved in in the time when that would have been particularly dangerous. Yeah, and if you, if you do rap, then now is the time now to... Is the, now, now is the time. Is the time. Yeah, let me know. Well, I, and I will say, of all of our housemates, I also am the person with the job that exposes me and everyone to the most, like, mm -hmm. stranger and out-of-house contact, which somehow gets a little, well, if you're doing risky things, but it's for your job, that's mm -hmm. fine. But if yeah. you're doing <laughs> equally as risky things for your enjoyment... Personal survival, enjoyment... You're yeah. a, ter health, a yeah. terrible person. Yeah, um, which really just sums up the entire uh, American <laughs> pandemic response. Yeah, I don't yeah, care yeah. If, the, if the working class die. It, it's bad if the working class die because they go to a club, but... 
it's good, actually, if they die because they are serving the bourgeois food. <laughs> mm. It's interesting how, um, and I guess this is kind of an adjacent topic, but like one of the things that I'm hearing a lot now is that, you know, there's the, the great, what are they calling it? The great resignation or, or something like that, or where people, a lot of people are leaving jobs that for various reasons in, in the current stage of the pandemic. And one of the things, there's like a lot of hammering about how that's, it's bad that people don't want to work the jobs they used to want to work like as though as though it's some sign of like moral degeneracy that they no longer want to get paid a subliving wage at Burger King or whatever. Right. Yeah. And like a lot of the time it's like, oh, there's a worker shortage because people don't want to work. And it's like, I mean, like the people who don't want to work line cook positions are largely avoiding that position because everyone they knew who shared that career path died. Not to get rough on the podcast, but for a lot of these like sort of essential worker positions, it's a, a resignation wave following a wave of deaths because these jobs were not made safe to work and they were not being paid yeah. enough to live. I was just hearing today, I forget where I was hearing, I think it was on some podcast though, but that like uh, jobs in public transit have been as deadly during the pandemic as frontline nurses have, as, as that position has been, which it didn't occur to me to think of that. But once once it's been said, I'm like, oh yeah, well, of course, that's, right. that's, that's such a high contact position and- where, where are the people like we don't really even do this for healthcare people anymore but for a long time there was this thing about like applauding our doctors and nurses going out at night and banging pots and pans or whatever to show your appreciation which is showing appreciation is not money um right if, if it were we'd have a very different sort of economy but it's not um, public policy either <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so but but it is something and it's not it, that's not like a, a courtesy that we we've been really paying to people in other forms of now truly like deathifying labor right yeah. yeah. I will yeah. also say, feel free to get um, talking about death on this podcast. <laughs> oh, um, boy. All right. <laughs> we, I haven't um, talked about visiting a cemetery in a long time on this podcast because I haven't visited a cemetery in a long time. Mm. But we, it's fine. The, the range is there. <laughs> All right. Cool. We have the range. Yeah, we do. We do death. We do death. I mean. I haven't really talked about my own death because it's not hasn't happened yet, but um, it is something I think about a lot. Yeah. I respect that. Uh, same hat. I will say that's one of the things I am most ambivalent about leaving my hometown, mm -hmm. which is the sort of rich relationship that I had with the dead in that place. And many of the things about that were bad. The thing that this place we we have all lived at in at one point or another that it is most famous for is being the site of a battle in the civil war and it is obvious if you live there long enough mm. that that is so this is going to be new information to me because i had like the college kid sure. experience yeah. so it is not obvious to me what you are about to say okay yeah awesome cool what i experienced so i crossed the town to gown barrier twice in that I had lived there since 2000, and then I moved out of the the university's orbit oh, very slowly. I continued spending a lot of time at the college because of my friends, including Rat. So I went to a majority minority high school, elementary school, and middle school. Because of my parents' family history, perhaps especially my mother's, um, it was important to them that I never attend school places that were sort of de facto segregated. So I am myself white. I don't usually do the HW thing. My parents do, um, but I did not pick up that feature. 
And there were a lot of black kids at my school and enough Latino and Asian students to make it a majority minority school. And it was one of those things that you really started to notice if you had the head to pay attention or were required to pay attention by the nature of your relationship to white supremacy. You know, white, you don't have to pay attention. I did, I didn't have to. The actual city where we lived, and it's very euphemistic to call it a city, had a much larger white population than the school because the school system where I attended, people white flighted without actually leaving physically. Mm. They maintained racial segregation by going to private schools or attending county schools and paying extra money to go there. Another thing about it, it was a place where you would be in a neighborhood where it was clear that everyone there was filthy, stinking rich. And then you would walk less than a quarter mile and suddenly you would be in a place that was clearly... Gentrification has been, go has been ongoing in this place for as long as I knew about it, but there was sort of a wrong side of the tracks. Um, there were um, specifically black neighborhoods. Um, it's one of the few places in the world where you can see a gerrymander that was drawn to make a voting district more equitable because Whoa. a gerrymander was drawn, which had this tiny little strip of land along the river to connect two otherwise geographically distinct, historically black populations to make sure that black voters had proportional representation in local government. Normally, those are drawn for the opposite reason. Right. It's a remarkable place in some ways, but I was talking about death. One of the reasons... <laughs> One thing I feel strongly about about that place that I no longer have as deep a tie to in Pittsburgh is I describe it as a place that's soaked in blood. It was colonized early enough that uh, it is not a part of any of the counties surrounding it because it is older than those counties. It is a place where some slavery happened. I could walk and go see those places. It was a place where the Civil War happened. I went to church someplace where there were still visible bloodstains on the floorboards because it was original wood, because it had been used as a hospital during the Civil War. And, you know, maybe people didn't really talk all that much about whose blood it was on the ground and why they had spilled it. Mm. And so if you kept a weather eye out, it was a place where you could really feel the presence of the dead. It had like its own ghost walk, but maybe that wasn't really paying attention to the right kinds of death. In any case, the other thing about it is that my neighborhood adjoined a graveyard and it was easiest, safest, quietest to get to town if I walked through the graveyard. And so in that sense, I was physically close to places where people maintained the rituals of death. I was very close to the place where one of my first high school classmates to die in my cohort. I was very close to him. Every time I say that about someone I know, I feel like I'm lying. I don't know. I have imposter syndrome for <laughs> having known people. We were in orchestra together. We were close in age. We lived very, very close to each other. I went to his house sometimes. Um, I gave his mother... I, ma I made her cookies after he died. Um, so, like, I am significantly ambivalent about the fact that I can't visit his grave very easily anymore. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. His birthday and the anniversary of his death were both very early in the pandemic. So, like, for a bit, I was able to go there and, you know, be unusually fucked up. Not just about his relatively recent death, but also about the world in general. And now I'm here, and that's not super possible anymore. I don't know the blood soaked in Pittsburgh as much as I, <laughs> as I did about the place where we lived. I feel like... To some extent, the pandemic has kind of 
changed my relationship with the people who died before the pandemic in that I feel like I no longer live in the same planet in, on which they died. Yeah. There's a certain sense of closeness that you can feel with people who are gone from the world. And that closeness, there are always ways to achieve that. And I'm not saying that's no longer accessible to me. But, you know, I was just thinking about a friend of mine from high school who died maybe four years ago now. And she never knew the phrase COVID-19. That's not a phrase that was ever, ever meant anything to her. And it's now like a defining feature of the life that I and the rest of this planet are living through. So it, it creates a, a further sense of distance between between me and those people, it feels like. Yeah. Which in some ways good for them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's better for them not to be near this. But um, in other ways, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very sad. It's a very depressing, morbid thought that, that occurs to me a lot. I have definitely had a lot of need to renegotiate how I relate to death and do it consciously. I don't want to go to a place that's personally painful. Rat, do you mind me discussing um, grace? Yeah, um, I, I was just going I've, to... I've talked about grace on okay. this podcast before and the desire to, during COVID, bouncing to a recent death, like that was my like way of I would visit um, Grace's grave. And that's mm -hmm. something I almost feel like where I had for that uh, experience had to come up with how I was going to go through the world facing like loss for that one death was sort of the things that I learned how to do and took yeah. with, with COVID. Like not that I <laughs> still struggle with like, can good things come from uh, someone who has been killed and shouldn't have been killed right. but like that that is something that i took from that so yeah yeah um, I, I think would be very very relevant yeah so like i said brett and i went to college together and we knew a girl named grace and when she died which was truly awful in some ways i wish that i had not known quite so much about her death until i'd had some time to adjust the fact that she was gone it, it's another situation where it's like to say that i was close to grace feels like lying, but we were friendly with each other. We had spoken many times. I had known her long enough to figure out that Grace is not a happy drunk. Grace is just like that, which it doesn't sound like a compliment, but if you knew her, it is a holy thing. Okay. And the language of the sacred is, I mean, it's where a lot of people go to death. Death is in some ways more fundamental to religion than something you might call belief. And my language for emotion had always been from my religious background. I was raised Episcopalian. I had sort of high church sensibilities, but we grew up mostly broad church and hymns and spirituals were some of the most visceral ways for me to contact emotion. And what I discovered when I tried to go looking for something to sing about grace was that there was nothing for me because grace is Jewish. And you know, I'm sure there are many religions where they have songs to sing about death that are not deeply dis disrespectful to sing about someone of another religion. Christianity, or at least my hymn book, does not have any such songs. Yeah, that's true of Catholicism as well, my background, so. Yeah, it does not really acknowledge death. Death isn't real. And that's the whole message that Christianity has to offer about death, is that it's okay, you're going to see them in heaven. And it's like, I can't do that to her. I no longer believe the things which save you in Protestant faiths. I mean, this stretches to Catholicism as well, at least, but in Protestantism, it's, it's been kind of like boiled down to, you need to believe specific things about Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. I don't believe those things anymore. So in that sense, like, I won't be there. 
I won't be in this heaven you're talking about. I don't believe it exists and I wouldn't be there if it was. And like, as much as people try to sugarcoat it, the party line is that no, Grace wouldn't be there either, which again, makes it a place I don't want to be. What a horrifying way to look at the afterlife. What a morally awful way to define what the afterlife is. And so like, I had already in many ways broken from what Christianity had to tell me about death and about grieving. And then I try to go back to it and it's like, well, maybe the words are wrong, but the tune will do something for me. I couldn't cross it. I couldn't get over that hurdle. And I'm glad that I didn't, but it left me with not a lot that I could do. Um, I couldn't sing about it. I couldn't sing about it in the language that meant anything to me. And so with the pandemic, it's not very safe to gather for funerals. And in many ways, the grief that I feel is often not the kind that funerals are meant to address. I have been relatively lucky. Relatively few people I know have died of COVID. You know, some people have gotten it, and that's terrifying, That who are relatively close to me, but they survived. And there's also grief to be had for people who survive because they were badly hurt and they were abandoned by their society. What do I do about that? Not a funeral. That's not what that's for. What do I do about the deaths of people whom I don't know, but I feel this pain about? not funerals, that's not what that's for, and I couldn't show up if it was. And so again, it's like, I have to invent something else. You know, I can't go to the graveyard anymore, not the one that means anything to me. And so uh, <laughs> I went to some like, um, like an occult shop in town, and it, when I moved up here, and I bought incense for ancestor veneration, and I don't know that it has any historical connection to any actual ancestor veneration praxis, but asking a wise woman for something to do for the dead is in its own way a kind of, it has meaning to me. So, hey, do you have anything for ancestor veneration? Yes, I compounded this myself. Whatever she compounded it from, whatever it meant to her, however she designed it, I asked and I got it. And so that means something to me. And I've been burning that, blowing it out the window in my room. Just every once in a while, I sit down and I say something to the dead. Mm. Well, yeah, as you say, that, that in and of itself is near universal in its connection to to practice of, sure. of religion, just asking. Yes. Um, I, not, not to drag us off death, but um, I do want to get to the one structured part of the show, which is action items. Yeah. Uh, Surprise, we have action items. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I thought I had lost, but I did write on a sticky note. Okay. Well, I also have them, but um, you can go ahead and read them. Okay. Our last time's action items were to read a book or book-like or book-adjacent thing, and to also seek out bargains and values. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you do either of those things? Yes. Uh, I had to read a book because when I visited my friends and childhood hometown, we were doing a book club on Frankenstein. So I had to. <laughs> I had to read a book. Oh. Did not read all of Frankenstein, but boy, did I read enough so that my uh, former English major instincts could kick into gear and I could uh, have a discussion. <laughs> so I did that. As for bargains and values, I don't know. Given the way that you shop for groceries, I think maybe you do that okay. a lot, actually. All right, okay. <laughs> the thing I will say on that is um, sometimes I buy soda for my household and sometimes the grocery store says, you don't just want one case of soda 
you want to buy two cases of soda and we'll give you two more cases for free. That's what you want. Actually, you want four cases of soda. <laughs> um, and that's what I do. I appreciate the amount of beverages in the house. <laughs> yeah, do, do you disagree? Do you not want four cases of soda? I don't disagree. <laughs> it just wasn't his idea. Yeah. Um, it's just an alarming amount to sort of bring. <laughs> and put over the heat vent which does make all of our soda warm uh, to the touch. And another, another quirk of our um, house that we currently live in is that the heating vents and the air conditioning vents are right over our food pantry. So in the summertime, it's very nice. Um, everything in the pantry is like very chilled. Now it is fall and winter. And so all of the soda that's in our pantry, you reach in to pick it up and it is as if someone else unseen has been holding that soda for just Perhaps long in enough. a very dry armpit. Yeah. <laughs> just long enough to warm it up. Well, I don't know about other brands of soda, but I do know that back in the 1960s, Dr. Pepper was marketed as a drink that you could drink hot. Yeah, and in fact, we have some <laughs> cream soda flavor of Dr. Pepper. So, <laughs> I actually, I'm a, I'm a diet Dr. Pepper drinker. It's my, it's my go-to poison of choice. And uh, I've never really gone for the hot version, but maybe maybe that's a good... Maybe that's an action item that I'll propose for next week. Hot, uh, drink drink a hot soda beverage. Oh God, I it's can... an action item we can't <laughs> avoid. <laughs> we, we can make that happen. Drink a hot soda, a nice hot soda. I guess Tom and Madison, I were springing this on you, but um, yeah, did you unknowingly complete any action items? Well, um, I don't know about bargains and values. I did quit a job and attempt to bully another job into giving me concrete information unsuccessfully. Yeah. So I think that's seeking out Bargain, bargains and yes. values. Um, I sure. did also read a book, a 1.2 million word. So that's good. What book? What book? Uh, it is called Heavenly Officials Blessing in English. An official translation is coming out starting very soon. And it is a, uh, a Chinese web novel mm. about a man, the laughingstock of the heavens, who ascends to heaven from mortality three times over the course of 800 years. And for this, he is sort of humiliated but it is about how, with the help of a very powerful ghost who seems to have been watching this sort of laughingstock god for a long time, they untangle the hidden corruption within heaven. Hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a xianxia novel, um, a very high fantasy one. So there's swords, you can fly on them. So kind of like in the same genre space as The Untamed. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so you have discussed The Untamed. Cool. Um, yeah, same author. <laughs> oh, same same author. Cool. So I, I don't remember whether this was before or after our, our most recent recording, but um, I recently reread the audiobook. I reread the book Dune uh, by Frank Herbert, which when I was a teenager was one of my favorite books. In fact, it was uh, probably my favorite book. And recently the movie came out, which I very much enjoyed. And it got me thinking, I wonder how the book holds up. And I loved the book Dune uh, on this most recent reading. Despite its problems, it, you know, it has some kind of weird magic that it, it spelled that casts over me. Um, but regardless of whether that was or was not in the time since the last recording, I did then do the second Dune book as well, Dune Messiah, which is nowhere near as good, but still, I don't know, satisfying in some ways. So There's two of them? There's two Dune books? There's a lot of Dune. There's a lot of Dune. So the, the original author, Frank Herbert, wrote six novels, and he left behind, allegedly, a safe deposit box with some notes in it that his son has used in collaboration with science fiction author Kevin J. Anderson to write a seventh and eighth book in that original series, plus like dozens of prequel novels, which are 
from what I've read, not not really very good. But there are, yeah, there are six original Dune novels. And from what I remember, my favorite ones were the first and the fourth. So maybe I'll I'll slog through the third to get to the fourth, which is the absolutely craziest one. Excited for that. Yeah. And I, I, I also, um, I sought out bargains and values. I ended up buying myself a Christmas present, which is something I do every year. Uh, I bought myself an Apple Watch, not the lady, latest, shiniest model, but one that's a couple of years old. And um, I've got a Black Friday deal on it. So I saved 50 whole United States dollars. Nice. Hell yeah. <laughs> Have All right. action items. Yeah, this is one of the rare times when I've done both action items, which I'm very happy about. So I've already proposed an action item for next week. I've, I've written down. Hot soda. Hot All right. S- Drink a nice hot soda. Rat, do you have one? I can do just a very practical one, which is um, obtain a 2022 calendar because my wall calendar, <laughs> as, as they often do in December, um, it's the last month, so it's going to run out. I'm going to need a new calendar. And Madison, if you want to, you can you can assign us an action item to complete between now and the next recording. Although I will warn you, we have a pretty bad success rate in terms of actually doing them. Either make an attempt at or simply examine something you did a long time ago. Hmm, that's a good one. A hobby you haven't picked up in a while or a piece, something that you made or looked at that you just have not seen in a while. Look at it again. Yeah, that's a good one. And with that, I think I think that's pretty much going to bring us to a close. So thank, thank you once again for joining us. It's been lovely to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me to rant. I have a personal website and a writing website to plug. Sure. Plug away. Wow. Sorry. Just you are so good at doing the nice promotion that I was certainly going to forget to offer <laughs> to do the courtesy of um, allowing you to do. What a wonderful segue to Thank you. Yeah, us. I mean, you know, y'all y'all know how the close works, and I don't have to pay attention to that, so I could only focus on the bits that uh, um, are, you know, personally relevant to me. <laughs> yeah, so I have a website uh, with a, some of my design work, my art, my poetry, and uh, my nonfiction writing. And it is madsvn.de. So that's M-A-D-S-V as in Victor, I-A-N dot, D as in dog, E. And then I also have a uh, write as, so that's the word write as in write with a pen, write.as slash madsvn. Same spelling, but no dot this time. And uh, that's where I post a lot of my uh, fiction, my original fiction. Nice. Which is pretty well content-worn, so, you know, just pay attention to that. But other than that, yeah, that's, uh, that's about what I have to plug. All right. So, so you, you, you probably do not know this, but um, we end every episode in the same way. And, Rat, how do we end every episode? We end it by staying distant. And by going the distance. <laughs>